Good morning. How are you guys doing? Yeah. Oh, it's good. Yeah. My name is Kayla. I'm so glad that you're here. If you're here in the blue seats, if you're in the great room, if you're in the hangar, if you're online, we're just glad that you have joined us this Sunday. We love that you're here, but we also want to just do life with you. So I have a couple of announcements. There's just things that are going on in this place this month that go beyond the Sunday morning. So again, I love that you're here. I love that you're here. I love being here with you. But there are things going on that we have planned to just go through life together as a church. So I'm going to go through a couple of those things with you. Sound good? All right. So small groups start on September 18th. You guys, I know what you guys are thinking. You're thinking school just started. It's fall. I have so many things that are going on. But I just want to encourage you guys. Um, in busy seasons, I'm entering into a busy season myself um, this fall. I'm going back to school. Um, but in busy seasons, <laughs> wow, thank you. Um, in busy seasons, I have an amazing mentor who encourages me and she says, Kayla, you put in your non-negotiables and everything else will fall into place. God is faithful. Just watch what he will do when you prioritize things that are feeding and growing your relationship with him. And one of the ways that you can do that is be belonging into a small group and a community of people who you can do life with. So we, la we launched small group registration a couple of weeks ago, but they are going to start on September 18th. So there's still time for you to sign up. So if you haven't done that yet and you're feeling like you're seeing all the things creeping up, the holidays are creeping up, everything is creeping up, I just want to encourage you to just take a breath God is faithful, get into a community and sign up today. So you can do that in the lobby, you can scan the QR code, you can go ahead and you can say hey to Ronnie in the lobby, whatever floats your boat. Um, the next thing I have for you is Baptism Sunday. Baptism Sunday, guys. Baptism Sunday is September 25th, so it's only a couple of Sundays away. We love Baptism Sunday around here. That is why we do everything that we do. It's to see real people have real life change and see them raised to life in Christ. Sometimes we make, we make Jesus too complicated. We make baptism too complicated. We complicate it with religion. We complicate it with peer pressure or societal expectations. We complicate it with our inner critic. But the only thing that every person who gets baptized has in common is that they have given their life to the only one who can save. And I want to encourage you this morning that God is writing a unique story in your life right now. Y'all, I got baptized our last baptism Sunday. <laughs> and for those of you that are doing the math, yes, that was after I came on staff here at church. I accepted Jesus into my heart when I was five, and then I was lost for a long time until I was about 23. And then before I knew it, I was in full-time ministry, and I had, quote-unquote, skipped a step. But let me tell you something. God's timing is perfect. And he showed me that you can't miss the boat when it comes to his blessing. He showed me that he's gracious and kind and he'll circle back as many times as it takes so that you can recover the things that you thought that you lost along the way. He is the redeemer of my story and he is the redeemer of yours as well. So if you have that in your heart and God's placed that in your heart, I want to encourage you to sign up in advance. It helps Ronnie who's out there, but you could also be like me and you could just walk up, just going to be real. Um, sign up for uh, baptism on the app, on our Fairfax app or on the QR code, or you can go find Ronnie in the lobby. I feel like I'm just giving him a lot this morning. Um, but he can handle it. He loves it. 
Um, so like I said before, we really do mean it when we say that we want to do life with you, and that's just not the parts that you want to put on social media that look good. If you need healing for something or if you're on a healing journey, you don't have to face it alone. So starting on September 14th, so that's on a Wednesday night, for four weeks, our amazing care team is leading a season of healing. We're going to dive into a couple of topics like boundaries, surrendering bad habits, learning that we are enough, and getting unstuck. I don't know about you guys, but those are definitely relevant to things I'm going through. Each session is going to be guided by a professional counselor as well as supported by our amazing lay counselor team. And you can sign up for that, again, on our Fairfax app. You can scan the QR code or you can do that in the lobby. Um, the last thing, I just wanted to encourage you guys in our giving this morning. We talk about your generosity and how grateful we are every single Sunday. And I just wanted to encourage some of you guys, if you can't tell I'm on a little bit of a kick right now, with just how generous and good our God is. How many of y'all were at Night of Worship this past Wednesday? He just really showed up, didn't he? But he does that all the time. He does that every single day. He doesn't just do that when we gather for a night of worship. He does that any time where two or more are gathered in his name. There his presence is also promised. And the more that I know God, the more good that he is. The more that I know him, the more generous he is. The more that I know him, the more kind he is. The more I know him, the more holy he is. The more powerful he is, the more he is. There's always more. But most of the time, I don't act like there's more. I cling on to what I have because I'm so afraid to lose it. And I sort of twist that into my own little version of, of gratitude for what I have, but it's not. It's a scarcity mentality that he never intended us to live under. And then that doesn't even open me to the possibility to more because I'm so scared of losing what I have. And lucky for me, and hopefully for you guys too, when I read scripture, it makes me feel a little bit better because it means that I'm not the only one who's gone through this before. So in Malachi 3, um, it talks about this. It says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And test me this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. Test him, guys. Just test him. He is generous. He is a good God. Why not trust him with the things if you believe that he really is who he says he is? I am not a better steward of my finances. I am not a better steward of my relationships. I am not a better steward of my time than God is. He is faithful, you guys. I have been so inspired this week. I've been praying my team through this night of worship. We knew that we just wanted to see God move. And I got stuck on Ephesians 3. And this is one of my favorite scriptures of all time. But it reminds us that he is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. Don't limit him today. Trust him today. Can I just pray for you real quick? Um, God, we're just so grateful for who you are. We're so grateful that you are who you say you are, even when we don't trust you fully. God, we thank you that you come back around, that you circle back around for us, God, that we are not able to miss your boat of blessing. God, I pray for every single person here, whatever they came in carrying, God, I pray that we would lay it at the foot of the cross, 
God, I pray that we would trust you more. I pray that we would grow deeper in relationship with you. I pray that we would test you and see your blessing poured out on our lives, God. What happens when we give you and entrust you with everything that we have, God. God, we love you. We are in a journey and we want to seek you more and we want to trust you more. We want to see you move in our lives and ultimately we want to love you more. God, we thank you for everything that you have given us, God, and we are expectant for the way that you pour out on your children because you are a good father. God, we love you and it is in your son's name we pray, amen. Hey, so we're starting a new series today. It's called Behind the Scenes. It is a four-week series in the book of Ruth. I am so excited to go through this journey for you, with you. Uh, Pastor Rod has an amazing message for us. Um, so go ahead and check out this video. When life goes in a completely different direction than we had planned, God is always at work behind the scenes to redeem the situation. at work in every encounter, in every decision, in every detail. God weaves together the faithful obedience of his people to bring about his redemptive purposes in the world. I'm excited about this new series. Um, I just want to uh, add one thing uh, to what Kayla was saying about Night of Worship. Night, Night of Worship was absolutely amazing, amazing, amazing. And uh, God just, uh, as she said, God shows up, but he is so faithful. But there's just something that happens when we all come together just to experience his presence and to celebrate what he has done and to... And to reflect on what he is doing in our own lives is just an amazing thing. And it was, it was fun too, you know, we had the block party uh, before it. And one of the things that we did at the block party is they had a nine square. And you guys know what nine square is? So like nine square is this thing that the youth have played and, and uh, some of our young adults have played. Uh, but it, it's, it's, it's played out and there's, I won't, like, I can't describe it, but I should have had a picture. But it's just like nine areas where you are and you're trying, it's like volleyball almost where you're trying to get the ball up. But it's this light ball that flies all over the place. It's crazy and it's fun. And I've never played it before. And I probably shouldn't play it now, but I did. And, uh, and, 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 and I, I did okay. Like, I did okay. Except, except for one moment where I got kind of twisted up in, in trying to get the ball, and I started to fall. And it was one of those falls. First of all, like, people get nervous when I fall. Just, you know, just you can understand why they get nervous when I fall. But it was one of those falls. For those who saw it, it was one of those falls that they said, it took an eternity for you to fall. <laughs> like, I was falling backwards, and it was on the concrete outside, and so people were like, oh. You know, and it's like everything happened in slow motion. Like, I'm falling back in slow motion. People are like, no, you're going towards me in slow motion. And, and after about 30, someone said, it took 30 seconds for you to fall. And, uh, and after I, then I fell, no, it didn't get hurt. didn't hit my head, which I'm thankful for. Got one little scratch on my hand, which was super. And, um, and then I got bandaged up, went back. And got in the number one spot again. Yes. And then I quit. Okay. So, 
All right, so as Kayla said, we're starting this new series day called Behind the Scenes. And uh, based on, it's a four-week study we're going to do based on the book of Ruth. Here's what's interesting about the book of Ruth. So many things interesting about this little book, this little four-chapter book. Uh, but one of the things that's really interesting about the book of Ruth is that God is barely mentioned in the book. Like, as, as the canon was being formed and, you know, it's like, which books are going to be considered, like, the books of God and all of that and is the people of God like God's referencing God was like a pretty key point in like what was a part of the canon what we consider scripture that we consider the authoritative word of God and what's interesting about Ruth is that God is barely mentioned in the book but even though God is barely mentioned in the book the evidence of God at work is like woven throughout the entire narrative God is at work behind the scenes, in every encounter, in every decision, in every struggle, in every pain, in everything that the, that the main characters in the book are going through, you see the miraculous hand of God at work. Now, basically, the book of Ruth is a love story. It's a love story of a daughter-in-law, Ruth, for her uh, mother-in-law, Naomi, it's the love story of a mother-in-law for her daughter-in-law. It's a love story for, uh, of a husband, Boaz, for Ruth, who eventually becomes his wife. And it's the love story of a God uh, who loves us. It, it's at its core, it's a love story. But this is a love story that begins in a very, very odd way. Because it doesn't begin like once upon a time... Or it doesn't start the way a lot of love stories start with some star-crossed encounter that, you know, you're unex it's unexpected and you're not quite sure where this is going to leave and it ends up in these two people falling in love or whatever. It doesn't start that way. This is a love story that begins this way. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. That is not the way most love stories start. And a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was, was Elimelech, and his wife's name Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malan and Kilian. And they were Aphrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab, and they lived there. Now, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. And they married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. And after they had lived there about 10 years, both Malan and Kilian, they also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and without her husband. Not the most promising of love stories. Like Naomi's life didn't go exactly as she had planned, as she had thought, as she had hoped and dreamed that it was going to go. First, a nationwide famine forces her to leave her country, forced her to leave Israel, immigrate her with her family to Moab, a country that she's completely unfamiliar with. And there's all kind of racial tension between these two countries, all of that. And then her husband dies. And then her two married sons, who she raised in Moab, who are now married, now they die. And now Naomi is forced to return home, empty, unfulfilled, bitter. And they all lived happily ever after. Like, it just doesn't seem like your typical love story. 
Now, for Naomi, this was a tragedy. And some of you that know a little bit of the context, you know this is a tragedy on so many levels. Pretty much everything Naomi had had been taken away from her. Like she experienced the loss of a husband. She experienced the loss of two children. Some of you experienced the loss of a spouse. Some of you experienced the loss of a child. It's just unspeakable, unspeakable, unspeakable loss. And then she lost her land when she and Elimelech moved to Moab. And because she's older, she, as she goes back to Israel, she doesn't have parents that are living that she can go back with and can live with. Plus, she really doesn't have the prospects of getting remarried and having kids and having a family that can support her in some way. So now she's about to go back to Israel and live what, for all practical purposes, is a dead-end, socially marginalized, economically marginalized life. In fact, Naomi is so devastated by all of this loss that when she returns home and the people greet her and they call her by name, her name is Naomi, and they call her by name, Naomi, this is how Naomi responds. Don't call me Naomi. Naomi in Hebrew means sweet. She said, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, which in Hebrew means bitter. Because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Now, maybe at some level, maybe you haven't experienced the kind of loss that Naomi experienced, but maybe at some level you can relate to Naomi in some way. Maybe you're going through some stuff in your life that has caused you to feel like God has afflicted you in some way. That, that things are just not the way that you would like life to be going. Maybe you have lost someone that you love or you've lost your job or you're in a relationship that is, is not going well or you want to be in a relationship and it doesn't seem to be happening or you've made some big life-changing move, some huge life-changing move that you thought was exactly what God wanted. You prayed about it. You thought it through. You talked to other people. You sought wise counsel. Didn't see any reason not to be in this direction. And you're hitting roadblock after roadblock after roadblock after roadblock. Or maybe you're dealing with some physical stuff that you never saw. Whatever it is, just going through a season where you're feeling kind of afflicted. Whatever it is, the questions that we deal with are things like, why is this happening? Like, why is this happening to me? Like, I understand it happens to people. I understand we live in this kind of world where stuff like this happens. Why is it happening to me? Why is it happening to me right now? Where is God in all of this? And maybe you wouldn't describe yourself as bitter. I, um, that's not a word that we often use to describe, even when we're going through the most difficult of things. But maybe, 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 if you were like really, really honest you would say you're a little angry. Or maybe you would say you're a lot angry because of what you're going through. So what do we do when life's not going the way we thought it would go? And how are we supposed to understand like that situation? That's so important to us. Like, how do I, how do I make this make sense? And, and more important than that, how are we supposed to understand God in the midst of situations like that? Well, I don't think there's any easy answers uh, for that, but I do think it's helpful 
to see how someone else has navigated through this, to see how Naomi navigated through this, because I think it teaches us some things. And I just want to mention those today. One, I think it just teaches us to be honest about our pain. We, we, we've already read that when Naomi returns home, she said, I feel afflicted. I went away full, but I've come back with nothing. I have come back empty. She basically says the same thing in verse 13. When she's still in Moab and she's talking to her daughters-in-law, she said, it's more bitter for me than you. Talking about all this loss. It's more bitter for me than you because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. So Naomi is not afraid to admit that she's in pain. She's very realistic about what she's going through. She doesn't try to sugarcoat it. She doesn't try to minimize it. She doesn't try to over-spiritualize it. She doesn't use religious jargon to try to mask the pain or make it look like it's not really pain. She doesn't say things like, well, I think God is trying to teach me something here, or this is just a blessing in disguise. She doesn't say any of that. No, she says, my life sucks right now. Like right now, my life sucks that I feel afflicted. I feel like God is out to get me. I, this is not the way I saw my life going, and I don't like it. And she's clear by the fact that she doesn't like it. She says, I know God is still in control. I don't doubt his existence, but I do not like what I am going through right now. Naomi is honest about her pain. Just like Job, just like Jeremiah, just like David was. In fact, that's one of the things that we see and we forget sometimes when we look through Scripture. We see this over and over again throughout Scripture that when the people of God are going through pain, they are willing to be brutally honest about it. They are willing to name their pain. They are willing to call trouble, trouble. In the Bible, the people of God don't try and pretend that bad is good. They don't try to pretend that evil is good in disguise. Throughout the Bible, we see the people of God complaining, lamenting when things don't go well. We have a whole book in the Bible called Lamentations, all about lamenting. A third, over a third of Psalms, of David's prayers are laments. And God allows that, endorses that, allows it in his word, does it? Nothing is there that tries to whitewash the lament, the complaint. Now, they don't stay in the complaint forever. They don't stay in the lament forever. They move past it. But they don't move past it. And this is what I want to, I think so important. They don't move past it too quickly. Sometimes when things are going bad, the church, people that love us, people that care about us, don't allow us the same space to lament that God allows us. We get, we, we can't get like stuck in our lament. Like we have to move forward from lamenting eventually or it'll destroy our life. But sometimes we need to give other people permission. Sometimes you need to give yourself permission to lament, to dwell in lament. 
for a little while. One of the reasons, um, and I'm not trying to take Scripture and psychoanalyze everything that's going on in our lives, but I really do believe one of the reasons sometimes that painful stuff that happened a long time ago just keeps coming up over and over and over again is because when it first happened, we didn't give ourselves time to lament. We didn't give ourselves time to sit in the awfulness of what's happening. We just moved on. Maybe we thought that's what God wanted, that God just wanted us to move on. Maybe someone who we love and with very good intentions convinced us you just need to, to move on. And it's not that we don't need to move on, but sometimes we can move on from lament too quickly. Sometimes we need to sit in the lament. We need to sit in the awfulness of what it is that we are going through. That's not the testimony of Scripture that people just moved on from their lament. Um, Yes, we're called to a life of praise, but sometimes if we don't allow ourselves to lament, if we don't allow ourselves to sit for a while in the awfulness of what we're going through and give expression to it, we never really get to authentic praise. We just get to a kind of pretend phase, praise, a kind of uh, made-up praise, a kind of uh, put-on-a-smile and... Say hallelujah and act like everything is okay. And God wants us to get to authentic praise. And we can't get to authentic praise until we are willing to go through authentic lament. That's the first thing. Second thing I think Ruth teaches us is that we don't, to not become preoccupied with getting answers. Um, Naomi doesn't like what she's going through, but she does not demand that God gives her an answer for what it is that she's going through and why it's happening. Now, I just want to step away for a second. And I've done this before. I just want to step away for a second kind of from all the emotion uh, that goes with pain because when we're in pain, we deal with a ton of emotion. But I want to kind of step away from all the emotion for a moment and just talk theologically about, about this. We, we know that pain and brokenness is ultimately the result of sin. Sometimes it's the result of our own sin. Like we do stupid things and because we do stupid things, painful things happen in our life. And we usually know when that's the case, where we've made some decisions, we've made some choices that have impacted us negatively or impacted others negatively, and we experience pain because of those decisions. And sometimes it's the result of someone else's sin, someone else's stupid choices that they make. A friend betrays you, someone abuses you, a person who's been drinking gets in a car and hits someone you love and it causes incredible pain. And maybe even destruction and brokenness in your life. So sometimes we experience pain because of our sin. Sometimes we experience pain because of someone else's sin. But sometimes 
the pain we experience is just the result of living in a broken, sinful world. That is not the way that God created it to be. It's not the way that it will one day be when Jesus comes and restores everything and makes everything whole. But in that in-between, between when God created the world and when he will recreate the world in all of its fullness, we just live in this broken, sinful world. A world where people get cancer and Alzheimer's and heart disease and experience hurricanes and earthquakes and famines and devastating floods. And we've been seeing that in Mississippi this week, just the devastation that's happening there and the crisis that's happening there. And when we experience pain that is the result of just living in a broken, sinful world, our understanding of why it's happening to me and not to someone else is never going to be complete. It's never going to be full. Paul actually talks about this when he says, right now we see through a mirror dimly. Like we don't see everything that God sees. And and even though we're walking with God and even though we're filled with God's Holy Spirit and even though God is at work in our lives, that we don't always see everything that God sees, that our understanding is just incomplete, it's not full. So there's a lot of questions that will remain unanswered this side of heaven. And when we try to definitively answer them, it usually leads to a very distorted view of God. Like we turn God, and I see this so often happen, we turn God into the causational agent of our pain. Now, sometimes we feel that way. Sometimes we feel like God is causing this in some way. Sometimes we feel like, God, what are you doing to me here? That's the way Naomi felt. That comes across in the way that she talks about the pain that she's experiencing. And others in Scripture have at times expressed it that way as well. He's expressed it as if God is the causational agent. But Scripture is super clear on this. God is not the author of evil. That God is not the God of death and destruction. That God is the God of life and wholeness. That God causing the awfulness and God using the awfulness are two totally, totally different things. Or sometimes when we become too preoccupied with getting answers, it leads us to a distorted image of ourselves. Maybe not a distorted image of God, but a distorted image of ourselves. We turn ourselves into the causational agent behind the pain. We think this awful thing that's happening must be because of something we did or something that we didn't do. But Naomi doesn't go there with any of that. She doesn't put the blame on herself. She doesn't say, this must be happening to me because I've done something wrong. She doesn't assume that God is punishing her because she left Israel and moved to Moab. She's not assuming that God was punishing her sons because they married Moabite women. There's nothing in the text that assigns blame to Naomi or to her sons for what's happening to them. Naomi is honest about her pain. But she's not preoccupied with getting answers to try to fully understand the reasons for what she's going through. And then the third thing I think that we learn from this, which is just so powerful, and the one I want to end with, is just to keep in the midst of 
pain, which tends to draw us in to ourselves and tends to cause us to focus on ourselves. That in the midst of pain, to keep loving deeply. There's this incredibly touching scene in the midst of all this pain and loss that Naomi has experienced where she turns to her daughters-in-law and uh, she says this, verse 8. Then Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, go back, each of you, to your mother's home in Moab. Because they're starting to, they're they're saying, we're going to go with you back to Israel. And they actually start the journey and then Naomi just kind of pauses and as much as she would want them to come back with her she says this no I want you to go back to your home may the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown to your dead and to me may the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another in the in the home of another husband and then she kissed them and they cried you can imagine the depth of all of that and said to her we will not we will go back with you to your people But Naomi insisted, and she said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have more sons who could become your husbands? And I am too old to have another husband. And they wept again and cried again. So even in the midst of her pain, Naomi is looking out for the best interest of her daughters-in-law. And that's why she tells them to go back home because Naomi knows that they are they are still young widows and if they remain in their own culture there's a much better chance of them finding a husband and building a family plus they'll be surrounded by their extended family and a community that they grew up in there's all of these reasons that it's better for them to stay in Moab and Naomi knew that if they followed her back to Israel they would likely be racially marginalized there was all of this racial tension between Moab and Israel and she knows they're going to be racially marginalized perhaps even sexually and physically abused and you see the basis of that fear in chapter two so she knows all of that and so out of deep unconditional love for them she says I want you to go back I want you to stay here I want you to be with your family I want you to be surrounded by your relatives I want you to have the best chance possible to live a really happy life Now, Naomi knows that her daughters-in-law not returning with her is going to make her life, like, way harder, much more difficult. And she doesn't care. Out of her deep love for them, she wants what's best for them. So she tells them both to go home. And reluctantly, Orpah agrees and and leaves. But Ruth, Ruth uh, puts her foot down. stops the ground and refuses, refuses to leave. And look at how she responds. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with them. She's even willing to have them to go back even though Moab is not the place that worships the one true God. But there is this unconditional love, even for, even for people that have different beliefs than her, there is this unconditional love for them. 
Like, go back, go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Think about that. Your God will be my God. Now, this is incredibly courageous on Ruth's part, first of all, because as many of you know and and as we deal with as a church, immigrating to another country is always a bold, um, drastic, courageous, unbelievably courageous thing to do in any situation. But usually when someone immigrates to another country, country like when they go to another country usually they go hoping at least hoping hoping that they'll have a better life but that wasn't true in Ruth's case her life was almost guaranteed to get worse not better if she immigrated to Israel if she followed Naomi back and her mother-in-law didn't have any resources didn't have any standing no parents left No standing in the community to protect Ruth from the awful things that could happen to her. Like we all, when we're in these new situations, we need some people who advocate for us and stand up for us. And Naomi had no resources and no standing as she goes back to Israel to be able to protect Ruth from the things that she might face. But Ruth doesn't care. Ruth sees something in Naomi that she wants. Not only is she drawn to the sacrificial love that Naomi shows to her, she is drawn to the God that is behind that sacrificial love. She doesn't want to go back to her God. She tells Naomi, I want your God to be my God. There's a spiritual transformation. In that moment, there's a spiritual transformation that takes place in Ruth's life. And it happens because someone in the midst of incredible pain that they still don't understand and they still don't have any answers for why it's happening, continues to love deeply. And when you think about it, you think about your own journey, I think about my journey, about how we come to faith, about how spiritual transformation happens, about how we become followers of Jesus, that Almost always, somewhere in the journey, it happens because someone in the midst of their pain, in the midst of whatever it is that they are going through, in the midst of just the struggles and difficulties of life, it's when we experience unconditional love from a follower of Jesus who may even themselves be going through a messy, messy period in their life. And they don't want, when when we have those experiences of unconditional love, we don't want to go back to our own gods, whatever whatever it was we made idols in our life, whatever it was that we made gods, we don't want to go back to that. We want their God to be our God. We want the God who is at work and allows them in the midst of everything that they are going through to love with that kind of deep, unconditional love we want that God to be our God like that almost always is part of a story of transformation that takes place 
Now, as I mentioned earlier, Ruth is a book that doesn't mention God a lot, but God is at work in all of these miraculous ways from the beginning of the book to the end of the book. And on the surface, here's what's interesting. They're miraculous things that God is doing behind the scenes, but on the surface, they do not look miraculous. In fact, they look like everyday stuff, just mundane, ordinary everyday stuff there's no dramatic interventions in Ruth there's nothing that looks on the surface miraculous no shout no shout of of miracle miracle that we hear in the text in fact it all looks ordinary it all looks mundane but God but God but God loves to do the miraculous but God loves to do the miraculous in the midst of the mundane. I've seen it in my life. Hopefully you have seen it in your life. The miracle of a friend who advocates for you and connects you to a doctor who ends up being used of God to bring healing into your life. The miracle of another friend who explains medical terms that you don't understand when you are sitting alone in an emergency room and your life is literally turning upside down or in the middle of the night when you get an email of the most recent test result and you have no idea what it means and what the terms mean. A friend who takes the time whenever to help you understand what it is that you are going through. The miracle of a lab technician who stays late at night to order special equipment that the hospital does not have and to advocate personally to the doctor on your behalf and then gets up early in the morning to drive to UPS to make sure that the test results that will shape the course of your treatment in a, is, is received in a matter of days rather than a matter of weeks. The miracle of a wife who went through her own battle with cancer, who understands your anxieties and fears, and yet is filled with hope and makes daily sacrifices to accommodate your new reality. The miracle of people who you know, who pray for you every day. The miracle of people who you don't know, who you have never met, who pray for you every day. God loves doing the miraculous in the midst of the mundane. And you definitely see that in the book of Ruth. Now, we'll unpack some of this more as the series unfolds, and, and it's going to be so neat to see how God is working through all this. But let me just give you, as we close out today and if we prepare, prepare for communion, let me just give you a little sneak peek, a little sneak peek of what's going to happen Eventually, Ruth marries a guy named Boaz. And they have a son that they name Obed. Think about this. Naomi's grandson. Naomi's grandson. Now think about that. Naomi lost her two sons. She lost the hope of ever having a grandchild sit on her lap, of ever embracing a grandchild. There was no way that she was ever going to have a grandson, but here she is holding in her lap the grandchild that she never thought she would have. 
Now, that doesn't take away all the pain. That doesn't mean that somehow that's a substitute for losing her two kids and that she doesn't still wish that they were alive and that they were there with her. It doesn't mean that. It just means that somehow in the midst of all of that pain and all of that loss that God was able to make her whole. Isn't that an amazing God? Isn't that an amazing God? Who even in the midst of our loss and pain, even things that we so totally wish had never happened, somehow we can be whole. That's Naomi's story. And there's more. Obed would grow up and have a son named Jesse. (laughs) Some of you know where this is going. And Jesse would grow up and have a son named David. And David would grow up and become a king. And out of the lineage of David would come a Messiah who would save the world. Think about that. We are here today sitting in this sanctuary, part of this community, online, wherever we are, we are here today. 2,500 years later, after all of these events took place, because in the midst of someone's pain, God was miraculously at work. And what at the time seemed ordinary, at the time seemed mundane. But it was the miraculous hand of God to make Naomi whole and to redeem the world. Unbelievable. That's the gospel. It's God at work since before the foundation of the world. In big ways and small ways. In spectacular ways and in mundane ways. To make us whole. to redeem the world. So as we take communion today, it's okay to lament. It's okay to lament the brokenness in the world that is all around us. It's okay to lament the brokenness that you are experiencing, the pain that you are experiencing. the hurt that you are experiencing, okay. But let communion also lead you to authentic praise. Because the God who was at work in the awfulness of the cross is at work in your awfulness. In big ways, in small ways, in 
spectacular ways and mundane ways to make you whole and to redeem the world. God, when we step back, and that's what Scripture allows us to do, and get the sweep, get the sweep of history. We are overwhelmed at the way in which you, your miraculous hand, weaves together the pain, the awfulness, the stuff that we don't want and would never pursue. The stuff that you don't want and would never cause. But somehow you weave it together in a way that makes us whole and redeems the world. And we celebrate that today as we take communion. The act at the center of that work of redemption. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Let's stand together.